Good morning. morning. It's a pleasure to be with you again. I have to tell you that my favorite Wahoos are Marvin Wahoos. I think they go, Wahoo. It is a joy to be with you. Uh, If we've not met before, I am uh, the previous associate pastor here at Salem. Uh, It's been four years, actually, believe it or not, so it's kind of hard to believe. Um, And now I currently work for a company called Thriving Financial. I'm a launch manager for them, so I get to recruit and launch new financial professionals. Uh, It's a joy of mine. Um, But when Terry was going out of town, she asked me if I wanted to preach the entire month of June. It's been four years since I've gotten to put together an entire sermon series. And I got I to be honest with you, this bivocational thing is, is no joke. Woo! I'm, I don't know if she knows it, Marvin, but I'm expecting a pretty hefty paycheck at the end of this thing. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It is, it is my pleasure and honor to be here and to do this. Now, the problem when you don't get to preach very often is you have a lot of things to say. (laughs) So the past few weeks, we've we've dove kind of deep. We've really been wrestling with the Trinity. And the Trinity being this core foundational belief of Christianity, yet if we're completely honest, none of us understand it. And so how can we have this core foundational doctrine of the church be this mystery? And how do we, more than that, how do we connect the dots between this core foundation doctrine of the church and living our life? Because let's be honest, it doesn't matter how much we stand up here and talk or how much we stand up here and theologize or whatever. If we can't put into practice what we believe, It just doesn't matter. So I've tried to position for you the past couple of weeks of how the Trinity can enter into our daily lives, specifically into our public discourse. Now, there are four things that are implied to talk about. The first one is, anybody? Politics. The second one is religion. The third one is? Money, the fourth one is sexuality, right? If you're on Facebook, you've probably hit three of those at least. Money is probably the only one you haven't touched. But politics is everywhere these days. And in fact, I made the argument in the first sermon that we have never in our life, in the history of the United States, been so politically divided than we are today. Historically speaking, the only other time that there's a similar precedence is right after the Civil War, which makes sense. Our country was at war with one another. So how do we as Christians enter into this sphere? Because we are not called um, to not have conversations with people. In fact, I believe that God calls us into the tough conversations. So how do we do that in a faithful manner in a productive manner, and in a manner that gets us somewhere. So the first week I asked you to kind of view the Trinity um, not as something to be understood, but more as art. 
Something that transforms us. Art changes you. A a beautiful song moves you somewhere. A beautiful painting moves you somewhere. It begins to form and shape you. And so I encouraged you in your daily prayer life to simply end your prayers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because by doing so, and we begin to gaze at the Trinity, it begins to form and shape us. Specifically in terms of individualism and collectivism. And I identified that there are some generational differences. It's not all generational, but there are are some pretty big generational differences that's happening in our dialogue and discourse. Last week, we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit and power dynamics specifically, and then very nitty-gritty specifically, uh, confirmation bias. And what we walked with away with there is a lot of us think that we are really, really rational and that we think through our positions and that we, um, we believe what we believe because we've, we've done the due diligence. And the reality is a lot of us are at the positions that we're at and then we use rationality and logic to back up what we already believe. And so it stops a lot of conversations that we, we have with one another. The trick there um, is to recognize that. And try to enter into conversation with folks in spite of that and to listen more than speaking. That's, that's the key there. So this week, um, I, I want us to, as best we can, view the Father from a familial aspect. I want us to see the Father not as some far-off, distant God of the cosmos that we can't be in relationship but as someone who is intimately involved in our lives and intimately cares about who we are. But before we get there, just a reminder. So Jonathan Haidt is one of my my favorite, I've mentioned him in the first week, he's one of my favorite kind of um, talking heads out there, if you will. He sits very center in terms of, of left, right. He started left, he's moved more center. He's a professor at New York University School of Business psychologist by trade, social scientist. So he's constantly trying to figure out how we got to where we are. And so he's identified seven things that have happened in the United States that have really, really polarized us. And I want to mention those seven, and I specifically want to talk about the third one, so I'll circle back around to it. The first one is really party realignment and purification. And that's been happening since 1964 to 1992. All that means is, if you identify left politically, which party do you identify with? This is my left, by the way, not yours. Democrats, right? If you identify conservative, where, or right, where do you typically land? Republicans. It didn't used to be that way. In fact, in each party, there used to be centrists, there used to be Republicans who were far left, believe it or not, and in the Democratic Party, there used to be Democrats who were far right, believe it or not. But now, we've completely separated the two. The second one that he notes, not only has there been party realignment and purification, there's also been voter realignment and purification. Now, more than ever, straight party tickets are being checked. You know what I mean by that? The very top, you just check Republican or you check Democrat and you go down the list. Because not only are the parties polarized, but so are us as voters polarized. 
The third one is really interesting. Um, changes in Congress. Does anybody remember what happened in 1994, politically speaking? Yeah! That's my boy right there. So 1994, the Republicans made a sweep of both the House and the Senate. Remember? Newt Gingrich came on the scene, and it's argued that Newt Gingrich has changed the most politically in the United States than anyone else in our history. And here's what he did. He did a couple of key things. One, he polarized us even more. So it was not uncommon for a freshman representative in the Republican Party to come into the Senate or the House and to be immediately invited by the Democrats to a social hour. Now that seems really foreign to us right now, doesn't it? But that was not an uncommon thing. They would actively try to cross those party lines. Well, Newt put a kibosh to that. Because we don't want our young freshman representatives to be, you know, in cahoots or whatever with, with the enemy. Second thing he did, he changed the Congressional Work Week. We'll come back to that. Third thing he did, he expanded the number of committees in Congress, and in conjunction with that, he shifted the political landscape to where, and this has come from a former senator, in the last two years of his Senate, he spent 75% of his time raising funds for re-election. Just let that sink in. 75% of their time raising funds for re-election. Not governing, dialing, picking up the phone. Let that sink in. All right, number four. There was something that happened in the 1980s media fractionization. Um, anybody know what hit in the 80s that was a, a big movement for us? TV? Well, MTV, yes. I mean, that was, yeah, sure, that was huge. But more, more to the point, cable television. And with cable television, what also came with that? 24-hour news cycles. And at the beginning, they, were, they tried to stay down the middle, but now we know that if you're on the right, what do you watch? Fox. If you're on the left, what do you watch? CNN. So we're confirming our biases over and over and over again. Another little thing happened in the 1990s. Anybody know what that was? Yeah! How many of you had dial-up? You remember dial-up? Gosh, when you were, when I remember being a teenager trying to sneak online, it was difficult to sneak online in the 90s. <laughs> Woo! The internet changed everything, of course. Because now, not only do we have 24-hour news cycles, we've got 24-hour access to anything we want to get at. Uh, the fifth one, residential uh, homogeneity, which basically means we've, we've, we've sectioned ourselves in urban and rural. So if you tend to lean left, where do you probably live? Urban, in the cities. If you tend to lean right, where do you probably live? Rural, right. Um, number six, the end of the Cold War happened in the 90s. Why was this significant? 
was a big deal. We, we lost our common enemy, so to speak, in the United States. Not saying that was a good thing, but um, it was a big deal. And lastly, increasing immigration and racial diversities happened in the 90s. A lot of things changed in the 90s. But let me go back to our, our buddy Newt. Probably the most, um, aside from the fundraising thing, because that's, that's a pretty big, big deal, the, the most interesting thing that he did was he changed the Congressional Work Week. Does anybody know when Congress works now? <laughs> Somebody said none. <laughs> In terms of the work week, anybody know? It's like Monday through Wednesday. So what happened pre-1995 when all these changes were made, if you got elected to the Senate, if you got elected to the House, what did you do? You picked up your family, you moved to Washington, D.C., you bought a house, and you set up camp. And what inevitably ended up happening is your kids probably went to the same school as somebody who was across the aisle, their kids. Your kids might even have played on the same softball team, t-ball team, baseball team, hockey team, football team, you name it. And so what ended up happening is across the aisles, they would see each other in social situations. And what happens when you see people in social situations? Look, you're just trying to get through that t-ball team, t-ball game, just like the other parent, right? And so you're having a conversation and you've struck a friendship. And lo and behold, what happens when friendships happen? You try to work with people you like. Now, what happens when somebody gets elected? Do they pick up and move their family? No. Their family stays back to wherever they were elected from, the state of their constituency. They fly back and forth between um, where they live in Washington, D.C., and very rarely do they have social interaction across party lines. And oh, by the way, it makes more sense to have your home in the home state. Why? Because 75% of what you do is fundraising. So you need to be present with the constituents that are going to reelect you. This is where we are. Who's depressed? <laughs> so how do we get out of this? How do we... As Christians, you and I, regular everyday people, how can we genuinely make a difference in society today? It seems daunting, I'll be honest with you. It seems just completely overwhelming. I think there's something at the core of who we are that drives us. Psychologists would call this, and this is a real term, trust me, I'm not just making this up, belongingness. Okay? belongingness. This is where psychology is moving. So according to Roy Baumeister and Mark Leary, who are pretty well known in, in psychological circles, much of what human beings do is done in the service of belongingness. They argue that many of the human needs that have been documented, such as the needs for power, intimacy, approval, achievement, and affiliation, you with me? Affiliation are all driven by the need to belong. So at the core of your being, driven down deep inside each and every one of us, is someone who's crying out to be seen and to be known. 
They go on to say, the need to belong and form attachments is universal among humans. And it's interesting, and here's where the shift in, in psychology takes place. This counters the, 40, the Freudian argument that sexuality and aggression are the major driving psychological forces. They're not. It's the need to belong. Those who believe that the need to belong is the major psychological drive also believe that humans are naturally driven toward establishing and sustaining relationships and belongingness. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, this is at the heart of who we are as a social culture, as a social creature. I had the uh, privilege to play in a golf tournament on Friday, and there was a group of guys. They were all connected because they graduated from Parkway South. And they played football and baseball and some other sports with a gentleman who, while he was in college, unfortunately had a heart attack and died. And to honor his memory, 21 years ago, they started this golf tournament as an anchor point for themselves to be able to get together and remember him. So psychologists would say, not only do you need to belong and have relationships, but in reality, those relationships need to be a fairly small group of people. Not only that, but they need to be long-sustaining groups. So it's no surprise to me that right now we have tribalized. And so it's going to be really, really hard for us to work our way out of this thing. But I've got one thing that I think is a radical act of Christianity that can help us get there. It's a, it's a small thing, but the small things are what make the biggest difference. This is true in my life. I mean, I'll give you an example. Drew and I, when we were looking for seminary, we traveled to Philadelphia. We traveled to Texas. We traveled to a bunch of different seminaries. And it wasn't until we got to Asbury in Kentucky that we realized, we didn't realize this until it actually happened. But every time we sat down with somebody who would admit me into the school, they only talked to me. Even though Drew was sitting right there. They only talked to me because I was going to be the student. I was going to be the one. And it wasn't until we got to Asbury that that individual turned and looked at Drew and said, well, what do you think about all this? Where do you think we went? Asbury, why? Because the, the desire to be seen and known is strong. As we go through a process for recruiting at work, uh, we've built into our process the very last thing we do with somebody who's going to come on board with us is we do what's called a VIP meeting. And it stands for very important person. We take them out to dinner. We break bread. That's important. And it's not about the candidate. We invite the most significant other person in their life to come along. That's who it's about. Because we want these individuals to know that when they come on board with us, they're joining a family. They're joining people that care about them and care about the people that they care about. And we want them to know that we're going to support them through thick and thin. This, this desire, this need to belong is incredibly strong that every single one of us in this room craves it every single day. The scripture is interesting when it comes to the Father. Now, in, in the Old Testament, the very first book of the Bible in Genesis... You remember the intimate relationship that God had with Adam and Eve? Creation happens, and Adam and Eve are walking in the garden. Who's walking with them? God. 
God is walking with them. There's no separation between the two of them. And then the fall happens and the dynamic changes. And in the Old Testament, we get a picture of the father as this kind of patriarchal guy who sits on the throne and oversees his family, the people of Israel. With me? It's kind of, it's family, but it's, it's distant, right? It reminds me, when I was growing up, I often heard, be quiet, your dad is sleeping. Anybody else with me on that one? Like, honor the patriarch in the, in the family, right? Your dad is sleeping. Nobody says that anymore. I don't, know, I don't know if you've noticed that. Nobody says that anymore. I, I don't even know what sleep is, to be honest with you. And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament. And Jesus changes our picture of the Father in a very radical sense. This comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 2a. Jesus says, don't be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. My Father's house has room to spare. Now there's two things to pick up here. One, the term for Father, father is, is Abba. I know many of you have heard this before, but Abba can literally be translated Daddy. So Jesus, and this was a radical move at the time of Jesus' day. He says, no longer are we going to view God as this patriarch up here that, that we have to, in, in some way, shush to be around. But now we're going to see the Father as someone who invites us onto his lap and cuddles us into his arms. Not only that, this text has also been traded in my father's house there are many mansions. Personally, I think that's a poor translation. Rooms. It gives us this idea that to be in intimacy with God and one another is to be family. Every Thanksgiving, we have the privilege of going down to Marvin's house in Farmington. Again, his summer home in Farmington. <laughs> I, I love Thanksgiving. Uh, what are we at? 26 of us now, Marvin? Is that right? 26 of us now? Is that right? Yes. I'm trying to get him in trouble. <laughs> It's 26 of us. I think there's four bedrooms. 26 of us! <laughs> and four bedrooms. But it's great. Because we're family. And don't get me wrong. I'm just like you. There's family I ignore too. But there's nobody else I'd rather be there to ignore. <laughs> there's something beautiful about this idea of the family of God and the Father bringing us all together in close connection and belongingness with one another. So the passage that Sean read has always been curious to me. Second Peter is an interesting book. I had the, I had the joy of, of studying it in seminary. 
Um, and, and I've always wrestled with this phrase found in verse 4. I don't know if you caught it. But Peter's telling us that you may share the divine nature. What in the world does that mean? So the best way that I can illustrate it, and I illustrated it this way a couple of years ago, but I'm going to do it again because I think it's that important. The way that we participate in the divine nature of God is one little word, grace. But how does that actually bear out? Like, what are the mechanics of that? Okay, so Carlos, I need you to come up here. Sean told me to bring you up, buddy, so you're on the hook. He just, and every time I come preach, you know I got to call you out. So I need um, three other volunteers. Any of you guys want to help out again? Sure. Yep. They helped out in the earlier service, so they know the gig, right? All right. Carlos, you're going to be Mr. Christian. Congratulations. You signed up. You're in it. All right. So Mr. Christian stands here, okay? And he's on a journey. You want to be the father again? Sure. Great. This shows us that uh, really with God, there is no gender. Uh, so we got our father right here. Now the father, let's, let's bring you over a list a little bit because this is a long journey for us in this life, right? The father, um, I already mentioned that the father had intimacy in the, in the Old Testament in the Garden of Eden, right? He walked. Um, and then in the New Testament, Jesus gives this, this even more intimate picture of who the father is. And specifically, Jesus uses a parable um, that many of you are probably familiar with. It's the parable of the prodigal son. Now, what is interesting about the father in the picture of the parable of the prodigal son? What is the father's action? What does the father do? Anybody know? He runs. Yes, when the son shows up, he runs to meet him, for sure. What does he do prior to that? He looks for him every day. He longingly, achingly, wants to be in relationship with his son so much that he stands at the doorway looking for his son to come home. So, in Wesleyanism, in our Wesleyan understanding of grace, we would call this, anybody know? Any Wesleyan nerds out there? Prevenient grace. Pre, prefix, before. It means the grace that goes before, that the Father is constantly calling us home. Right? Just begging us to come home. Now you have to keep that up the whole time. Okay. <laughs> so hopefully your arm will get sore. You can't switch arms either. <laughs> All right. Now, at some point in our Christian walk, we make the decision to orient towards God. Yes? So we hear this provenient grace calling us, and we orient towards God. Now, sometimes we might get thrown off, uh, mainly in our college years, and we orient away from God. But eventually, hopefully, prayerfully, we come back and we orient towards God. Okay? Second part of grace. Who is Jesus? You, you'll be Jesus? That's a tough uh, task to take on there, brother. Now, Jesus. What is significant about Jesus? Jesus incarnates. That's a big word, but it basically means that God, God's self takes on flesh. So Jesus stands right beside us. You guys didn't know you were going to get close today. All right. Jesus intimately, 
Catch this. He's walked in your shoes. He knows the pain that you feel. He knows the joy and excitement that you experience. He knows exactly what it's like to be human. And he stands right beside us. Not only that, but he goes the extra mile and stands in our stead and allows us to come back into relationship with God. We call this justifying grace. Okay? Anybody know what this is? It is the Trinity, after all, right? This is the Trinity. This is the Holy Spirit. Now, I like to think of the Holy Spirit as the best coach you've ever had. Okay? Now, think about the best coach you've ever had. They know when to push you to perform your best. That's their job. But they also know that if you've gone through something very difficult, to pull back and to lift you up and comfort you. And so the Holy Spirit gives us this energy and ability and pushes us forward. Very good. Look, her arm's still going. You got to keep up, Spirit. Come on. (laughs) Pushes us forward. Now, slow down a little bit because this is a long life, right? You're just not going through. Pushes us forward until we reach our final destination. And you guys know what to do at this point, right? You stand right in the center there, buddy. Then we get this picture, this beautiful picture. Remember, we're talking about belongingness. We're talking about intimacy. We're talking about being seen, and we're talking about being known. So we have the Father. We have the Son. We have the Holy Spirit. And Mr. Christian is intimately connected as part of the divine nature of God. This we call glorifying grace. And it means that there is absolutely nothing in this world, no relationship that can separate us from the love of God. Intimacy at its core. Let's give our folks a a hand for thank thank you all. So I mentioned there was one thing. One thing that I think we can do, us us piddly little citizens of the United States, to, to make a difference in our current cultural climate, there's one thing that we can do. My final class in seminary, I had the privilege of, of putting together a self-study. In the very first week in this sermon series, I talked about the Catholic worker movement, if you remember. And so my final class was a study on Dorothy Day and Peter Morin. And I got to dive into their works and and to see how they accomplished ministry of holding this tension between uh, the individual self being called to care for the many. And my professor, Dr. Christine Pohl, who was overseeing my studies at this point, her focus was on a little thing um, that we forgot about in Christianity called Christian hospitality. Now, when we think of hospitality, we think of, you know, I don't know, the Marriott over here, and we think of, like, this surface-level hospitality, right? But Christian hospitality calls more of us. 
So when she was doing her doctoral studies, she kind of traveled around the United States to these intentional Christian communities. And she was trying to figure out what was it about Christian hospitality that we need to regain, that we need to pull back into who we are. We need to remember who we were as Christians early on and how can we put that into effect. And so she went and she visited the Catholic Worker Movement in New York, the very first Catholic Worker Center where Dorothy Day and Peter Morin started it. And she lived with them. Now, there's two aspects of Christian hospitality. There is the guest and the, anybody guess it? Host. And determining which one of those, that's pretty important to see who is providing the hospitality for the other. At every other uh, place that she visited, she could pretty much make out who the guest and who the host were. It made sense to her. But when she was visiting the Catholic worker movement, she couldn't figure it out. She couldn't figure out who the guests and the hosts were. Now, if you are an academic, this drives you nutty. You got to have an answer. So she took a a wonderful little lady and she kind of pinned her against the wall. (laughs) And she said, hey, you got to help me figure this out. Who in the world is the guest and who is the host here? She said, well, we really don't like to, you know, put folks in a box that way but I guess if you're pushing us for an answer the answer would be that the host is the one who can bear the burdens of the guest on that day the host is the one who can bear the burdens of the guest on that day one of my favorite little books that I, that I read quite a while ago, it was early 2000s, it's called Adventures in Missing the Point. <laughs> it's written by Tony Campolo and Brian McLaren. They tell a lot of stories in there, and they're really trying to get us, honestly, back to the roots of our Christianity with Christian hospitality and how we actually show love. So they tell a story in there that they're at a Christian convention. The convention goes late that night, and so they go to the local IHOP or, you know, one of those pancake joints downtown in, in a major, I think it was in Philadelphia. And um, they're eating pancakes, and then all of a sudden a group of women come in. And they can tell that these group of women were night workers. And they were done doing what they do. And they come there every night to have breakfast or dinner or however you want to define it. So they overheard their conversation, and uh, Tony Campolo and Brian McLaren overheard one of them say, hey, guess what, tomorrow's my birthday. And they were like, oh, really? That's great. I didn't really think about it. And so as a radical act of hospitality, Tony Campolo and Brian McLaren grabbed some people from the conference and went to that place the very next night thinking this might be a regular show-up point for them. And they decorated it to the nines. And they threw this woman a birthday party. Now that, it may not sound like it, that is a radical step of hospitality. Our God is the God of belongingness. Our Father intimately sees us and knows us. But not only that, our Father calls on us to intimately see others and know them. 
So the first week I asked you to end your personal prayers and in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And last week I asked you to really dig deep and take stock. Of what are some of the, uh, when you get into conversations with people, what are some of the confirmation biases that, that you have this week? I'm going to ask you to go one step further. So I've got three questions for you. The first one was this. Who was the, the last person you purposely went out of your way to show radical grace and hospitality to? No, like seriously, what was their name? Who was it? Who was the last person that you disagreed with and you went out of your way to show radical hospitality and grace to them? And lastly, what practical steps of hospitality are you going to implement in your life today? Because it doesn't really matter if we talk all ethereal unless we put it into practice today. And if we do that, we've got a shot of starting a cultural revolution, of pulling these two sides that are deeply divided back together with one another by the sheer gift of friendship. And if we can create, as the Father creates, spaces of intimacy and seenness and knownness and belongingness, as Brene Brown says, those who have a strong sense of love and belonging have the courage to be imperfect. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.